over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. We started last week with Ezra and Nehemiah, and these essentially are a unit. And I want to show you two charts, and then I want to show you a brief video from the Bible Project. But I want to begin with this chart from Ezra. Because as we talked last week, um, that we have about 22, 23 years, the first six chapters. And then there's only a year with the last section of the book. But there's a 60-year block in the middle that's not covered in the book of Ezra. And so it's sort of like teaching uh, Western civilization history. Uh, they're jumping around a bit. And it's hard for us to, as a casual reader, even a, if you're a, a detailed student, like a precept, BSF, community Bible study person, it's tough sometimes to put these things together without some aid. So this is one reason I so love the walk through the Bible. By the way, these, these are Ken Boa and uh, Bruce Wilkinson's charts from Talk Through the Bible. So the restoration of the temple, the reformation of the people, the, the two big categories, you see Zerubbabel and Ezra, and we're going to see another one in a minute. So remember, this just picks up from 2 Chronicles 36. They were in Babylonian captivity. They were being exiled back home. And you've got that 70 years of exile, and now they're coming home. Now let's look at Nehemiah to see where we're going this morning. Ezra, we might say, was the spiritual, let's get back and get the temple complex together. Nehemiah is going to be the hands-on project manager, but he's also got some grit in him when it comes to theology. And you, if you know the book, you'll see that toward the end of the storyline. But this only covers 20 years or less. And uh, 52 days, they complete this wall, this project. Unbelievable. And anyone who's done any kind of building project, you know, you pull a permit and it's two years later, right? Uh, so to think of this building program, uh, I like the way Boa and Wilkinson differentiate this. You've got the wall and the people. Again, not unlike what Ezra was doing. You also have the political versus spiritual. He's got all these people in opposition, Sanballat and others. And then the whole thing takes place in Jerusalem. So we're now parked the storyline. We're back in the old city. And again, about a 20-year time period. Now, the Bible Project, what they accomplished in eight minutes, I could not accomplish in eight messages. So I want you to watch. And when we watch this video... Uh, watch for some things. If you're an artist, watch the nuances of some of the things they accomplish with the way they characterize, for example, the one temple that's rebuilt and another temple that's rebuilt. Watch some of the nuances. Do you know the phrase sword and trowel? If you come from a reformed background, sword and trowel, when they're fighting against the wall and they got to keep a sword on their hip and, uh, and still working, watch how the artists, they accomplish so much, which is, you know, it's just a genius that people can envision things artistically. So keep an eye out for some of the subtle details, and let's watch the Bible Projects, Ezra and Nehemiah. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah. 
In most modern Bibles, these books are separate, but that division happened long after it was written. It was originally a unified work written by a single author. The story is set after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and its temple and took many of the people into exile. And this book picks up about 50 years later and tells the return of some Israelites to Jerusalem and then what happened when they rebuilt the city and their lives there. Specifically, the book focuses on three key leaders who led the rebuilding efforts. You have Zerubbabel, then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And the book's design focuses on the efforts of each leader. Zerubbabel leads a large group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Then about 60 years later, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem to teach the Torah and rebuild the community. And then he's followed by Nehemiah, who leads the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. And these three stories are designed to be parallel. Each begins with the king of Persia prompted by God to send the leader to Jerusalem and he offers resources and support and then each leader encounters opposition in their efforts which they then overcome but in a way that leads to a strange anticlimax in each of the three parts. Let's back up and see how it fits together. So the story begins with a decree from Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he's moved by God to allow the exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And the author says this fulfills a promise made by the prophet Jeremiah that the exiles would one day return to Jerusalem. Now, this fulfillment should trigger our hopes in the many other prophetic promises that exile was not the end of the story. We have hope for a future messianic king from the line of David. We have hope for a rebuilt temple where God's presence will dwell with his people. Hope for God's kingdom to come over all the nations and bring his blessing, just like he promised Abraham. And so it's with all these hopes in mind that we read on into the story of Zerubbabel. His name means planted in Babylon. He represents the generation born in Babylonian captivity, and he leads a wave of Israelites returning to Jerusalem. After they settle there, they rebuild the altar for offering sacrifices and later the temple itself. The foundation laying ceremony and then the temple's final dedication, these are key moments. The past stories of the tabernacle and temple's dedication should be in our minds. This is when the fiery cloud of God's presence is supposed to descend. He's dwelling with his people, and it doesn't happen. And so while some people are happy about this new temple, the elders who had seen the previous temple of Solomon, they cry out in grief. It is nothing like their glorious past or their hopes for the future. And it's right here that we get the first story of opposition, and it's very odd. So the grandchildren of the Israelites, who were not taken into exile, they had been living in Jerusalem all along, they come to offer help with the temple rebuilding. And Zerubbabel refuses. He says, you have no part in our temple. And this, of course, generates a conflict which Zerubbabel overcomes, but it's very strange because the prophets had envisioned that the tribes of Israel would all come together along with all of the nations to participate in the worship of the God of Israel when the kingdom finally comes. So this is an anticlimactic moment to say the least. In the next section, we zoom forward about 60 years and we're introduced to Ezra. He's a leader among the exiled Israelites in Babylon. And he's a Torah scholar and a teacher. And so he gets appointed by Artaxerxes, king of Persia, to lead another wave of people back to Jerusalem. And Ezra wants to bring about spiritual and social renewal among the people. Our hopes are high. And again, we come to another anticlimactic moment in the story. Ezra learns that many of the exiled Israelites that had come back, they had married non-exiles who had been living around Jerusalem. Some of them were non-Israelites, and almost certainly some of them were. 
Ezra then appeals to the commands of the Torah that Israel was supposed to be holy and separate from the ancient Canaanites. And he then says that the people living around Jerusalem are like the Canaanites. They're going to corrupt the exiles. So Ezra offers a prayer of repentance, and it's very heartfelt. But then he rallies all the leaders and enacts this divorce decree that says all these marriages should be annulled, the women and children sent away. And then the decree is only partially carried out. We're given a list of some of the men who divorced their wives. The story is very strange for a number of reasons. First of all, God never commanded Ezra to do any of this. It was the leaders of Jerusalem who led Ezra to make the decree. Second, the contemporary prophet Malachi, he did say that the exiles should care about purity, but he also said that God was opposed to divorce. And so the mixed results of the decree, this all fits into this pattern of a strange concluding anticlimax. Which leads us to the next section about Nehemiah. He's an Israelite official serving in the Persian government, and when he hears about the ruined state of Jerusalem's walls, he prays and then gets permission from the Persian king Artaxerxes to go and rebuild the walls. The king even gives him an armed escort and all these resources. So after arriving in Jerusalem, he begins the building project, and he too faces opposition from the people who had already been living around Jerusalem. Once again, we face a tension in the story. The contemporary prophet Zechariah said that the new Jerusalem of God's kingdom would be a city without walls, that God's presence would surround it, that people from all nations would come and join the covenant people. But Nehemiah seems to operate with the opposite vision. He informs the people surrounding Jerusalem that they have no part in Jerusalem. And this, of course, provokes them to hostility. And so while Nehemiah carries out his vision for the city with integrity and courage. They have to build the city with armed guards to protect them. We keep wondering, could this whole conflict have been handled differently? And this all leads to the conclusion of the book in two movements, first positive and then negative. Ezra and Nehemiah combine forces to bring about a spiritual renewal among the people. They gather all the exiles together for a festival. They read and teach the Torah to all the people for seven days. And then they celebrate the ancient Feast of Tabernacles to remember God's faithfulness from the Exodus and the wilderness journeys. Then they offer a confession of their sins. They vow themselves to renew the covenant, follow all the commands of the Torah. And they finish with a great celebration over the temple, the walls of Jerusalem. And we're thinking, this could be the turning point, but it's not. The book ends on a huge downer. Nehemiah tours around the city, and he finds that the people have not been fulfilling their covenant vows. So Zerubbabel's work is undone as he finds the temple being neglected and staffed by all these unqualified people. He then discovers that Ezra's work is being compromised. He finds everyone violating the Torah, people are working on the Sabbath, and even his own work on the walls is involved because people are setting up markets around the walls of Jerusalem and working on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah, he goes on a rampage. He's beating people up, he's pulling out their hair, and he's yelling, Obey the commands of the Torah. And his final words are a prayer that God would remember him, that at least he tried, and the book ends. I mean, it's very strange. But we've been prepared for it, right? These anticlimactic moments have been woven into the book's design intentionally. And so it raises the question, what on earth does this book contribute to the storyline of the Bible? Well, remember, the book started by raising our hopes in the prophetic promises about the Messiah, the temple, the kingdom of God, and then none of it happens. 
So even though Israel is now back in the land, their spiritual state seems unchanged from before the exile. And while Ezra and Nehemiah, they do their best, but their political and social reforms among the people don't address the core issues of their heart. So what the book is pointing out is the same need highlighted by the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. What God's people need is a holistic transformation of their hearts if they're ever going to love and obey their God. And so the book ends on a downer, yes, but it forces you to keep reading on into the wisdom and prophetic books to find out what is God going to do to fulfill his great covenant promises. But for now, that's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Pretty impressive, isn't it? I mean, and, and some, some of the nuances you might, eh, that's not exactly how I might read that part of Ezra and Nehemiah, and you're not going to agree with everything they do, but I think it's a tremendous project, and I would encourage you to take a look at it on your own. And again, share it with uh, friends if you're homeschool, mom or dad. It's a wonderful, wonderful resource. Well, what I want to do with uh, the book of Nehemiah is run over nine sort of grand observations, but I want to give a little background on the opening chapter because uh, we all know the story that he's a cupbearer to the king. And we have this picture, maybe with flannel graph or film strip, or depending on how, what time you grew up in Sunday school, of a guy that would you know, take a bite of meat and a sip of wine before he gave it to the king to make sure it wasn't poisoned. That, that's a very uh, oversimplistic, almost ridiculous viewpoint of a cupbearer. Think of him more as a cabinet member. Think of him more as a Joseph to Pharaoh. Yes, he would be involved in all the operations, but if you've ever been to the White House and you've gone to the White House mess and you've been able to go down to the White House kitchen, there are a lot of people involved with the purchasing of groceries and what ends up on cabinet members and dignitaries and state officials' plates because you want it to be handled well. So don't just think of him as sort of this guy that's you know right before the prince, uh, the king takes a bite, he takes a bite, is he going to drop dead? That's sort of a miscalculation of this cupbearer role He's much higher up, uh, more like a butler to the king than just a servant. The, as the, chapter, uh, the chart from Ken Boa points out, the first seven chapters are the reconstruction of the wall, and the chapters 8 to 13 are the restoration of the people. So let's dive into these nine characteristics or nine observations, and uh, you can improve on them, but this is a way for me to get a handle around the book. And it's also a way to be very applicable with what this story is about. And the first one is that godly leaders identify with the problem. Godly leaders identify with the problem. When he shows up in chapter 1, you're going to see as we read this section, he owns this situation. Let me read. You can follow on the screen beginning with verse 3. Technically, on the screen picks up at verse 4. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach because the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Verse 4, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And his response is not to go to work right away. His response is to you know, get actionable. His response is one of brokenness and repentance and prayer. Verse 5, I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness, chesed, for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, 
confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we, we, identifies, have sinned against you. I and my father's household have sinned. We have acted corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. He's broken, he's devastated, he's humiliated, he owns it. There's no blaming. It's not merely the Jews failed, the exiles who, who those who weren't exiled, who lived, as the graphic, uh, the project showed, there were some that stayed in the city. And he's not beating up on them. He's, we as, a, as your people have failed. Verses 1, 6, I, my father, we, he owns this whole thing. Just as a sidebar, and we've all been around, whether it's uh, men and women in business or in medicine or education or ministers can be some of the worst when there's an overuse of the first person pronoun. When you hear someone, I, me, my, you know, uh, you, you can say, I go to a church, but if a pastor says, my church, the hair on the back of my neck stands up. Now, I know what he probably means by that, where he is on staff or part of it, but it just sounds like an ownership thing. And I work very, very diligently to say, this is ours. This is not mine. It's not about a person. Um, but any leadership position, when you hear someone overuse the first person pronoun, I just it just feels a little creepy to me. It's all about that. I mean, if you're Elon Musk or you're Bezos, you, you can say those kind of things because you're running a corporation. But for the Christian, um, first person plural goes a long way. Ours, we, you and me are part of this. Um, Cindy and I were uh, privileged to be part of the Ramsey Solutions uh, official groundbreaking uh, last Friday, they had a big all-day event, and it was so cool to hear Dave talk about you know the team that accomplished this. He didn't do it, even though it's got his name on the building. He didn't do it, and he was very intentional, saying this was a team effort. No one person could have done this, and he acknowledged all kinds of people because it took so many subject matter experts and so much labor. And that, to me, is a sign of a good leader who knows how to use a first-person plural pronoun and, and, and recognize others. Uh, it's a very simple lesson for you and me uh, when, when we have a challenge, and probably 80% of us in this room right now are facing some really difficult problem in our life. We've got a challenge in front of us. Um, do you own it? Have you identified with it? Uh, when, you, when you see the problem in front of you, are you willing to say, I, I have to own my part in that? And that's a sign of a good leader. He's not coming in telling you what you've done wrong and calling you up on evaluation. We need to. This is part of our nation. Secondly, godly leaders are servants. Godly leaders are servants. And this is consistent throughout much, much of the Old Testament. Verse 8 of chapter 1. Remember, the word which you commanded your servant Moses. This is a sidebar. Moses is a unique prophet among the Old Testament. He's the most revered prophet among the Old Testament, more so than David as a king. He is looked to because he spoke to God face to face. He got the law of God from him. And so there's this high reverential in regard to Moses. Remember when the scribes and Pharisees try to, you know, tay to tay with Jesus? Moses said, that's the trump card. Moses said. And so when he appeals to you commanded your servant Moses. He's going back to the beginning. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. 
If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there, and I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. Uh, again, subtle but important differentiation. The temple complex was not a thing to be worshipped. The temple complex is where he put his name. You're not worshipping a building. You're not worshipping the majesty of the temple palace. You're worshipping the place, not technically, but where he put his name. So this is where Yahweh's people gather to worship Yahweh. It's a fine differentiation, but it's important. Verse 10, they are your servants, your people, who you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. He's got good theology. And make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Um, we don't have time to detail it, but for him to go in and ask Artaxerxes what he does was a very brave, risky proposition. Uh, this is the internal cabinet member. He's a cupbearer. He's got rank and privilege. He's a servant to the king. And to go in there and the way he responds, his countenance, how he explains the situation, there was a lot of prayer and prep on that one. It, this was not off the cup. You know, off the cuff, like I heard some bad news, you know, I need to go fix this thing, and can I take a couple of years off, and can you give me supply? He had very, uh, when I was in uh, Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia area, I've told this story many, many times, but we have what was called executive briefs. Some of you with a military background know what a briefing is. There's a 40-page document, but there's a brief, and that brief encapsulates that 40-page document in a very succinct way, Pros and cons, cost, impact, personnel, time frame. It's sort of the, the highlights, like a table of contents of what this big process is going to be. And Nehemiah's response to Artaxerxes is a, is a well, well worth a study and how someone prepared. Um, he refers to Israel and himself as servants, which I love. He refers to himself as a servant. And in a me-first entitlement culture, this is so countercultural. This is so counterintuitive to the way we look at life and what life owes us and what our children, the attitudes that we pick up without even trying. We're frogs in the kettle, and we start getting this me first, I mean my thing. We need a massive reframing. You know what you and I deserve? You know what you and I are entitled to? Hell. That's all we're entitled to, friends. As lovingly as I can say that in Jesus' name, you are entitled to hell. That's all you deserve. That's all I deserve. We deserve nothing. And this leader demonstrates that. Mark 10, 5, our Lord and Savior says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So the lesson's obvious. How do you and I demonstrate servanthood? How do you serve not just people, but serve Christ? thing that helps me a lot is I'm not just being a servant by uh, cleaning a restroom. I'm serving God's people. I'm serving God in every area of your life, whatever you're doing. Um, one of the things about, about the Puritans that I so admired uh, was their view of whether you were doing laundry or making a meal or whatever you're doing, you were serving the Lord. And they were, they were preoccupied with, 
if you're ironing clothes, if you're washing, if you're working in a field, if you're building furniture, uh, if you're a doctor and you're working with patients, you're serving God in the use of your hands. And that, that's helpful to me. Some of us are in jobs maybe we don't enjoy or we dread or we'd like to have a different job or create a new reality. Would it help if you start looking at it? As, I'm serving God in this. This is a vehicle, the sphere of influence He's given you and me to serve other people. How do we demonstrate servanthood? Thirdly, godly leaders have a sense when their skills are needed. And this is an interesting one for me. Uh, chapter 2, verse 8. A letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, and the wall of the city for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of God was on me. I mentioned last week in Ezra the number of times hand, 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 hand is referred to that God's hand is on something. Three times we have that continued in Nehemiah, that God's hand was on the project. Um, not to sound pretentious, but I think we can look back on the last year and say God's hand has been with Stonebridge. And, and that to me is encouraging. It's not just a work of the flesh or a work of might, but the, you know, the Lord's doing something in people's lives that we can't quantify. We can't say this is why this is working. We can't say why so many of you said, I'll be a small group leader for a while. I'll step up and do that. I'll try. And we had over 30 men at Wayne's uh, house yesterday at 7 a.m., I said to someone, it's one thing when you live out that south of town, but if you live in Brentwood, that's a, that's a 40-minute hike to come at 7 on Saturday morning. I want to sleep in and watch cartoons and have cereal, right? <laughs> I don't want to go all the way out on the Thompson Station. Over 30 guys showed up. Something's going on. That's pretty exciting to me. That's God's hand. Well, and Nehemiah's prayer is interesting because he's aware that unless God makes this possible, it's not going to work. This is too big of a project. Um, that said, leaders have this sense of when do I get involved? And it's, it's a delicate, tenuous balance. When do you push and when are you patient? The fulcrum of leadership rests on those two questions. When do you push and when are you patient? And some of us are wired to get it done, you know, Ready, fire, aim, get out of my way, lead, follow, get this thing done. Others are like, well, let's think about it. Let's have a few meetings. Let's pray for a few months. You know, and both, both extremes can be uh, sort of a retreat, if you will, to a wrong form of leadership. Um, what issue is in front of you, and you look at it and you go, I could help. I could do that. Now, it's easy to be a, a critic at work or at a school. We're, we're talking to some parents that have kids in public school. Hoy, hi, ooh. You know, I don't know how you do that anymore. Uh, I never thought I would live to say that, to, to, to say, to be a person that says, if you're not in a tutorial or homeschool person, you need to look at it seriously. And it's a, it's a rocky, bumpy world out there. And if your kids are in public systems, you've got to be very involved with what's going on for their heart and soul because it's, it's a frog in the kettle majorly. And uh, some of us can't afford Christian schools, and that doesn't always absolve us of some of the challenges. But as a leader, you see something, you go, that's wrong. And then you have to decide, am I going to be a critic or am I going to step up and be helpful? And that's a tenuous balance. I can't tell anybody how or when to do that. 
But if, if you're stirred up, if it's bugging you, if it, every time you see it, it's a constant irritation, or you go, I could fix that. We had someone, uh, obviously won't name, but when we were talking about now that we can use this facility a little more uh, semi-permanently for Sunday mornings, that we, we needed some equipment. And the family said, well, what do you all need? They decided to help in a big way and take care of that. Wow. They decided, I'm going to press it. I could do that. I know a little bit about what that requires, and I'm happy to do that. Um, it's interesting, you know, our personalities, um, you know the old adage, your greatest strength taken one step too far is your greatest liability. Um, but there's, there's a fulcrum in there once in a while when you know, I need to push. I can't tell you when. I can tell you when I've done it, it's been wrong, the wrong time. And it's also equally as wrong to sit back and do nothing sometimes. Because if you have the skill set, the knowledge base, the expertise, or you've had some experience in doing this before and it's not really being done well, yeah, I, I could help out there. Maybe I can't do what Jason does, but I could help out in some respects. Uh, that to me is a whole part of the body of Christ. And I think it's a wonderful lesson. What issues in front of you in your workaday world, your neighborhood, your sphere of influence, where you could say, you know, I could step in. I might be able to make a difference there. What area would benefit from your leadership? A little sidebar, if you're complaining about something a lot, one of two things, stop complaining or get involved and help. Because complaining never changed anything, right? Whining doesn't change anything. I'm still learning that. Fourth, godly leaders know they will have opposition. Christy pointed this out. Two verses from chapter 2, verse 10 and verse 19. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Verse 19, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and the Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And this is a recurrent theme throughout the whole book of Nehemiah, the opposition he faces. I don't care how strong you are, how tough you are, when people start opposing you and mocking you and hurling insults, it takes an emotional toll. It, it, it's, more, I mean, it, it's strange how words can affect us so deeply when someone, even if they're wrong, which in this case they were, it's still, and it, it causes people to be afraid. It causes people to question leadership. It causes the people working on the wall to be worried. I mean, if a fox jumps on the wall, it's going to fall over. And if you're working on it, go, well, that might happen on my section here, you know. I mean, I'd hate to be the one where the, the breach happened. Um, you know this already. You're going to face opposition in life. I don't care what your job is. I don't care who you work with. I don't care where you volunteer. I don't care if it's your neighborhood. I don't care if it's lifelong friends. I was with a dear, dear, dear brother not long ago, and he said, you know, this guy and I, we've been friends for like 20 years, and it's just changed, and I, I've tried to reconcile with him, and I, and we had this long conversation, and his heart's broken, and the kids used to hang out together. It's been very complicated. He goes, what do I do? I'm, I don't have the answer, but I'll make the observation. Relationships are transitional. Sometimes you turn the page on a relationship. Sometimes, if possible, so far as it depends if you be at peace with all men. So you can't always work it out. You try, maybe you could try more. I can't, I can't ever tell anyone that. Um, it kind of goes back to the prior point. There's 
a place where you push and a place where you're patient. And you've got to be the one that lives with that consequence. None of us are going to do this perfectly every time. Just acknowledge that. We're going to mess up. The good news is uh, don't be surprised when you face opposition. Don't be surprised when you face opposition. Uh, I have learned over the years that keeping a big picture helps me. Because typically the opposition comes in small little segments or issues, whether it's a company or a ministry or a neighborhood, it's some little thing. That neighbor never mows their yard. Anybody got a neighbor like that? That neighbor's dog leaves his business in my yard every single day. People get worked up about this. It's really exciting. Um, <laughs> what's the big picture? Big picture is being a good neighbor even when you got neighbors that aren't good neighbors. Unless they're, you know, they're gonna move soon. But you know what happens, someone else is gonna move in. You know, it's always the luck of the draw, right? Um, I came up with an axiom years ago, do the right thing in the right way and go home. And I've tried to live by it for years. Do the right thing in the right way and go home. When we were living in Chicago, I had 18-hour days, and it was not uncommon to be on a plane at least once, sometimes twice a week for the first two years. I did not take one day off. And that was nobody's fault but mine. Nobody was making me do that. That's how I was approaching the role. And it, uh, it hit me at the end of this two-year process. I have not taken one day off from this role. I've got to stop. And uh, I had lived for a long time to do the right thing in the right way, but I added the, and then go home. Because you know what? The email will be in your inbox tomorrow. And you know what? People will resend it if you continue to ignore it. <laughs> and if you continue to ignore that, they'll finally pick up the phone and call you. It's an amazing thing. I used to try, are any of you like, I hate having email that's unread in my, any of you like that? How many, raise your hand, let's see. Let's all have it. I have trouble with my inbox, I hate it. I have like 238 right now, and I have four accounts, and one account that just clamor. I break out in a sweat when I open that account. How can you possibly deal with 238 emails? And there, there was a time in my life when I would take a weekend, oh, talk about fun, and clean out my inbox. You know what happens by Tuesday the next week? Another 30 in there I gotta deal with. It's just, it's just like it's like Johnson grass or you know, ivy or weeds. It just never stops. And I finally got to the point where I'm not gonna lie when people send me an email and say I didn't get it. I'm saying, I haven't read it. It's in there, I'm sure. I'm sorry. I just can't spend my whole life in front of a keyboard answering email. Maybe you want to do that, but I don't want to do that. And if it's really important, I don't want to hurt people's feelings, but there's just a lot of stuff out there to do in those inboxes. Um, have any, any of you, of course, now it's all backed up, but in the years gone by when Outlook was on your computer, have any of you ever lost it all? I lost everything one time. I lost all my contacts, everything in Outlook. It was, it was first I was like in a cold sweat and I'm like, Yes, praise Jesus. <laughs> it's gone. Clean slate. Start over. I can honestly say it's all gone. Can't say that anymore, unfortunately. Uh, but do the right thing the right way and go home. Those are important. You got to do the right thing. And then sometimes it's the right time. And sometimes there's a better way. But go home. Because the work will always be there. Fifth, godly leaders clearly define the task. 
verse 11 of chapter 2. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days, and I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So he's got this small entourage. This is an important detail. He's not doing this survey by himself. He's got a detail with him, but they're on foot for the most part. Verse 13, so I went out by night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well onto the refuse gate, which today is called the dung gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate with the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. I entered the valley gate again and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. This is what I call an ancient strategic planning. He spent time on the ground. Um, it's, it's a political uh, optics thing today, but the, uh, the governors or mayors or presidents need to go to a site. If the hurricane comes through, you're going to see the cabinet down there in some place. And, you know, think of the Bahamas right now. I mean, the Bahamians down there. Goodness gracious, those, it's surreal. You wonder if it'll ever be recoverable at some level. And, you know, but the officials have to go. You got to get on the ground and see that. And, of course, before drones and high definition photography, you had to go put your feet on the ground and see what the flood damage was, what the hurricane was. In this case, he is essentially uh, the project manager. He spends three days going around this wall to get the scope of the project. Um, you got to know what's in front of you. You got to clearly define the task. Jesus himself says, which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. It's nothing new. The Proverbs talk about, you know, you consider a field. You're going to buy this thing. You better be sure you've got what it takes to get it done. It's a very simple point, very simple lesson. Have you clearly defined the task? Um, living with chronic pain, I spend a lot of time talking to people who have chronic pain or facing issues, and I, I often tell them the same thing. Just do the next thing. Just do the next thing. Just do the next thing. And and for my life, my desk, my the way I get up every morning, those to-do lists, those 238 emails, I'm not going to get them done today. But I can get these things done. I can shave. I can shower. I can get dressed. I can get my cup of coffee, nectar of the gods. I can get my cup of coffee. I can sit down. I can open my little uh, handbook to prayer. I can do my reading. I can do the next thing. I can do the next thing. I can do the next thing. And then I jump into this project or I jump into this job I've got to do. Maybe it is dealing with an email. Maybe it's dealing with something else. And I go, okay, Michael, just sit yourself here for a while and work on this one thing. Some of you, if you're ADD, I face the wall. I can't look out a window. I, I was squirrel before. That was cool. I mean, anything will distract me. I, that plant needs dusting over there. Oh, it's a little messy. I don't like working with stuff on my desk. I mean, I, I can get so distracted so quickly. It's ridiculous. I'll run some laundry. I'll help Cindy out and do the laundry while she's at work today. I mean, no, get your and work, boy. Sit down there and work. And if you have that problem, so it's helpful when I say, what am I going to do? I still use, I didn't bring it, I still use 3x5 cards 
Everything's on the computer today. We all know that. But there's something about a 3x5 card. Actually, I do have a post-it to illustrate that I wrote this morning when I said, I got to be sure I have this one in front of me when I go to church because in case I forget, and Wayne did a good job of saying, 29th September, uh, you're going to have a training for children. I got to be sure. that. So there's certain things for me have to go on a piece of paper. Now, that may seem awfully, Michael, why are you talking about this in a sermon about the Bible? You got a clearly defined task. What are you going to do today? Because you know as well as I do, today will take over your life if you let it. If you don't know the three things you're trying to get done today, it's a simple biblical principle. Six, godly leaders cast vision. Chapter 2, verse 17. And then I said to them, You see this bad situation we're in. Jerusalem is desolate, its gates are burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God, there the hand is, the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, Let us arise and build. So they put their hand to the good work. I want to make one differentiation here about vision. There are so many books on vision, whether it's in business or entrepreneurs or churches having vision. Uh, I don't think this is the vision where you go up to the mountain and pray for a week and come back down with a great idea that we're going to do, we're going to build an electric car. Those are visionary people, and that's great. When Scripture talks about vision, it's talking about what does God want us to do? And it gets real clear by the New Testament mandates. We're making disciples of all nations. We're loving people as Christ loved them. Love our neighbors as ourselves. Great commission, the great commandment. It gets real simple. You don't have to recreate that vision. You don't have to recreate a vision for how the church is built. It's built on the foundation of the pastoral epistles in the New Testament. You don't have to have a new vision for these things. And this whole idea of a vision for a church or a vision for your ministry, a vision for your website, a vision for your company, those can be helpful. But when we're speaking of these things, what was Nehemiah's vision? Rebuild the wall. He didn't say, I'm going to build a new wall. I'm going to build a better wall. We don't need a wall. Let's do another project. He's going to rebuild what was already in place. Just as a side note, this is the city of God, the place where he put his name. So the application is real simple. When you look at your family, your sphere of influence, the employees you work with, your co-laborers, what is the biblical vision that you have where God's placed you? And this isn't hard. You don't have to go on a mountain and pray about it. Are you representing Christ well? Are you caring about the people that you work with uh, uh, more so than maybe their productivity or their that they're an irritation all the time. Uh, you know, we all could tell stories about this. You get to know the irritation person. Sometimes you understand a little bit more about his or her background. And okay, I get why they're kind of always grumpy. When I was in doing my master's, there was a person that worked behind the periodical lending area back when you actually checked things out. And uh, you would go there, and this woman, I don't think had smiled for 40 years. And it was my goal and objective, my four years there, I was going to get that woman to smile at me. And I would go, how are you doing today? I mean, she, I, you know, something really bad happened to her in a former life, I'm sure. Uh, and, and it was so interesting, because over, it was months. And she would kind of just barely crease. I said, Lord, I think that's a smile. I'll take it. I mean, it was so hard. But just trying to be compassionate to her, thinking about all these nerdy, goofy seminarians that are 
reading these, you know, periodicals that no one should ever read or have to read. Um, you know, all these abstracts and things that would bore everybody to death. But point being, uh, she's a person. And she's not happy. And that can be frustrating. But maybe the simple vision there is, I want to be the nicest Christian she's come in contact with today. I want to be the nicest patient at that medical office. I want to be the nicest parent when I go see my teachers for my kids. I want to be the nicest neighbor. I want to be the person, the man and woman Christ wants me to be. Pretty simple. Seven, godly leaders enlist the right workers. All of chapter 3 is a long list of assignments, and one of the most interesting obvious observations is that people uh, were assigned, not recruited, they were assigned, you're going to repair this portion of the wall that's right at your front door, let's say, for illustration. And that makes sense, because if I live three doors down from so-and-so, I want my wall to be impenetrable. They can go and rob his house or her house, but I don't want them coming in my door. Um, and that really was the theory behind it. Um, Fred Smith um, said something years ago, the time, to hire, the time to fire someone is before you hire them. The time to fire someone is before you hire them. And uh, when I was with Moody, we had a HR vice president, who, a dear friend, good godly man. He worked there almost 40 years, and he had hired or fired over 800 people in his tenure. Can you imagine that? Over 800 people. And he had the personality to do it. I mean, that requires a different set of metal because letting people go is hard no matter what the situation. And I would talk to him often. And he was, and when we would be hiring a new position, we would vet them and vet them and have other people interview them and think about it, sit on it and pray about it and all those things. And it's always the same question. Is this the right fit? Does this man or woman understand, can they fit in this area of the corporation, the job, the ministry? Do you have the right workers? Uh, eight, godly leaders pray. The book is littered with prayer. The book is chock full of prayers, and it's almost like a knee-jerk response for Nehemiah. Uh, again, the reason we gave you all this little red book is to get you and me out of our meaningless repetition. It's so easy to say the same thing. I have the same struggle uh, this morning when I was reading this. And this is where you know, the rabbit goes off in my head. But I was reading uh, third month, day eight. And the passage they had was uh, in 1 Peter 1, 6. And excuse me, 2 Peter 3, 10. Since the day of the Lord will come like a thief, what kind of person should I be in holy conduct and godliness as I look for the hate and hasten the day of the coming of the Lord? And this is all about the future, right? And the new heavens and the new earth. But what, what caught me that I had missed all these years was the day of the Lord will come. Forget your eschatological theories on timing. The day of the Lord is going to come. And that's what stopped me in my heels. My Lord, it's going to happen. This will come. And it just reframed my prayer. Lord, you're in control. You're sovereign today. I don't have to worry or wring my hands, right? You're going to come on your time scale. My job is to be faithful in the meantime, not successful, just to be faithful, just to be faithful, just to grow, just to mature. And you see Nehemiah's life littered with prayer, 
and your life and mine. It doesn't have to be a psalm. It doesn't have to be a soliloquy. When you're dropping your kids off to school, Jesus, help my sons and daughters be the light on this campus. Help them understand they're a witness. Help them be safe. Help them not to feel bullied. Help them, whatever it is. Just a simple little, just seizing your whole day. I think that's what pray without ceasing means. Through the day, Lord, I need help going to this meeting. I need help getting this email out. This is a complicated thing I've been given to do. I want to do it well. I'm meeting with a person that's difficult. Lord, help me with that meeting. Are you growing in your prayer life? And finally, godly leaders have integrity. Chapter 5, I won't read it, but it's one of my favorite chapters in the book of Nehemiah. The backstory on this is he's gotten accused of sort of misappropriating and misusing resources. And so he opens the books, <laughs> and he talks about what he did that he even put his own money in the project. He didn't draw a salary like he could have. He talks about all the people he fed, all the people that you know we might say were employed at the higher level of the project, and how he took care of them when they came in to be part of this rebuilding process. It's a wonderful chapter, and, and one of the, oh, by the way, some poor Jews had indentured themselves to affluent Jews. And there was a place for indenture in the Old Testament. You could, you know, if you, if you remember like the old um, movie, uh, like Bonanza, you know, a ranch hand. You could stop and you could work as a ranch hand in the old westerns. Think of it that way. You could work for a landowner until you got off your, on your feet and then get a stake and you could work. Same for Israel. When they lost a husband or they lost a family member or they had illness in their family, sometimes they would indenture themselves to get back on their feet, and Israel was to take care of one another. It was a pure form of socialism, not this idea of everybody owns everything, but you take care of each other. And then when you're established, you get back on your feet, and you're on your own. Well, this open, the books, is all about integrity. And you can check it and see. Um, Cindy and I have often lived by this maxim that um, you know our checkbook reveals what's important. When you look at you know the, the organizations, ministries we support on a regular basis, it tells you what we believe in. And that's an area you need to think through. Psalm 101, David says, I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. Only the faithful of the Lamb will minister to me. I love that phrase, I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. That's the place where no one sees you. And I'd turn up the amp just a little bit. It's not only the, what you do in the privacy of your home, but what you coddle in the privacy of your mind. That's integrity. That's where it starts. Do I coddle those thoughts? Do I coddle those lusts? Do I crave those sins? Or do I say, Lord, this is, this is the problem. It's wrong. I'm going to call it wrong. I'm going to live squeaky clean as a man or woman of integrity. So lastly then, how's your integrity? Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.